Can we thank Omid and, uh, and Krista for leading us this morning? Awesome. Um, and then let's just pre-thank Bobby for painting, even though we have no idea what she's going to do. Does that sound good? Um, well, sweet. Well, we are at the tail end, actually, of a series that we've been in for weeks now uh, called Conversations. And basically, what we wanted to do uh, was paint a picture of prayer. Uh, prayer can be one of the most confusing, weird things we do as Christians, and it's just people. Uh, and so we wanted to clarify what prayer can be, and it turns out prayer is a really hard thing to pin down, and that's actually really good news. Prayer is so many different things and can be accomplished in so many different ways, and I think pigeonholing it to just kind of closing your eyes and folding your uh, hands can be a detriment uh, to what we're trying to do in our lives, in our relationship with, with Christ. So uh, we talked about everything from prayer as, as uh, writing, as listening, uh, as speaking, as conversation. All these ideas have been thrown out. This morning, I want to talk about an interesting uh, aspect of prayer, uh, and that's that I believe prayer helps us on the journey. Um, and the journey is a big, big thing when it comes uh, to any moment in the Bible. If you open up the scriptures, you're going to find yourself either at the beginning, the middle, or the end of a journey. Uh, and the journey just keeps going. And when I say the word journey, this wasn't written in my sermon at all. I used to open up for a band called Journey. It's a long story. You can take me to coffee. But I wince whenever I hear that name. So anyway, it, but we're going to reclaim journey for us all. Um, but prayer is honestly, it's, it's the key thing that helps guide us on the journey. Uh, and that can come in the form of people. Uh, that can come in the form of just stuff we can get from God to kind of direct us in the direction that we need to go. Um, but I think that journey uh, has a partner, uh, and that's freedom. And if we look at the scripture, if we look at what God does in the world, it's always to help people understand that within the journey, not the outcome of the journey, but within the journey, there's freedom. The ultimate form of following Jesus or Christianity or whatever word or label you want to put on that uh, is to understand that there is absolute freedom right now, right here, wherever you are on your journey, especially in the painful moments and especially in the joyful moments. They're both. Freedom is everywhere if only we choose to see it. And I think a choice, at the very, at the very essence of freedom, to be free is to be able to choose something. Non-free people, captives, slaves, anything like that, they don't get to choose, right? Choices are made for them. But at the heart of freedom is to choose. Words like yes and no actually have power, actually have meaning. We can actually use them now. And a big part of freedom is just being able to say, no, I'm not doing that. What a wonderful device we have uh, in our lives. Uh, but this morning to do that, I want to frame this um, in a couple ways, and I'll give you a little roadmap here. We're going to talk about Exodus uh, we're take a little nerdy deep dive into that, uh, and then we'll talk about um, a story of a friend of mine at a party, uh, and then we're going to talk about um, how God calls us sheep and how that's kind of funny, uh, and then we're going to go uh, and talk about crying because, you know, let's end on a good cry. So uh, to do that, uh, I'm going to need uh, God's help. So let's all pray and pray that I don't screw this up. Lord, I'm so grateful uh, for this community, for this church. Um, for the crazy things you're doing in our community and, uh, and the growth that we're seeing, not, not, in, uh, not just in, in numbers and in people, Lord, but uh, I truly feel like we're not just growing, but we're growing up. Uh, and I'm so thankful um, for the spirit of kind of maturity that you've placed uh, in our midst and uh, in our planning. So thank you for this morning, and uh, let's talk about freedom. Amen. 
Uh, so Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So if you open up a big old Bible, you're going to find the table of contents, you're going to find Genesis, and then you're going to find this very large book called Exodus. Uh, and Exodus is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible because I love, I love, love, love like stories in the Bible. That's what lights me up. Like I can read through Romans and 2 Timothy, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's awesome and it has its place and it's so cool. But the stuff that really gets me are the stories. Because I think stories in a certain kind of way are like they, they can unfold in us as we unfold. So as we go down the journey and as we continue down our own path, the stories that we have and that we carry with us actually unfold as we unfold and we can look at them in different ways. And actually one of the stories we're going to talk about uh, about someone getting thrown out of a party, uh, being tied up, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're going to talk about a way that in my journey, I've begun to see that uh, differently. But these stories that we hear in churches and that we encounter in Scripture uh, are stories for a reason. And Jesus was terrific at doing this. He would, he would do things uh, when he was trying to show people what the kingdom of God looked like. The vehicles he would use for that were like healing. He would bring healing into a situation. He would, he would give dignity back to humanity in those situations. And then also, the other way that he would try and, uh, try and get people to really grasp what this kingdom thing was, was he would tell them a story. And his disciples would ask him, like, why are we telling stories? Like, why can't you just tell, tell it like it is? Like, give them the facts, give them exactly how this thing works, and let's go. And Jesus' whole thing is like, no, no, it doesn't work like that. Like, they're not going to understand unless it's framed within a story. And in Exodus, we have the overarching story of the entire Bible. The anchor story for not just the Old Testament, and I think as sort of like Protestant Christians, we've given up uh, the Old Testament and its power a little bit, but that is absolutely wrong. Exodus is the key theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Exodus is a story of God freeing people from slavery, setting captives free. And in our tradition, we understand that Jesus is sort of that new Exodus. And here's the really important thing that I want us to leave with, if you leave with nothing else. Uh, Exodus is not something that just happened thousands and thousands of years ago, but Exodus is something that can happen every single day if we choose to pay attention and to lean into it. Every single day. It's the whole point of this whole Jesus the Christ thing. It's to free you from what enslaves you. So let's go through what Exodus uh, is. Exodus means uh, in, in, uh, in Greek and the way that uh, the, the people at the time of Jesus would have studied this scroll, it would have been a Greek word for departure. So basically meaning like someone comes from point A and they're leaving and they're going to point B. Uh, but the Hebrew name for this book, which I think is fascinating, has nothing to do with departure or freedom or anything like that. The, the Hebrew word is Shema, and that basically means names. So this book called Exodus in Hebrew means names. And the literal reason for that is because it kind of starts out and it says these are the names of the people. So they start out with a genealogy, and so the Hebrew people are like, well, that's where it begins. Just call it names. Uh, but I think there's something really profoundly interesting uh, in the fact that it's called names. And I think that's because when you can name something, you can, you can be free from it. You can understand it fully. When you know something well enough to give it a name or to name it in your life, you have the power to be free from it. And even more so, when you are named or you are found and someone literally gives you a name or, or you are found in your identity, that is true freedom. Freedom is understanding exactly where you are in the world, in your current context right here and now. It's a full understanding of the present context that you're in. 
and naming something gives us that power. Our first job that God gives us in the garden is to name things, is to say, hey, I want you to take all of this craziness and I want you to identify things. That is what we do as human beings. We identify, and that gets us in trouble, right? We can take that too far. God was like, I just wanted you to name a couple animals. Stop identifying now. But we, we go and use that identifying stuff in really powerful and sometimes destructive ways. Uh, but the truth is, like, names and identity are this enormous uh, part of the Exodus story, excuse me. So Exodus uh, means names, uh, and basically what happens in Exodus is we open up in a period of history uh, where Israel was really good with this other nation called Egypt. There was a guy named Joseph, he's got a Technicolor dream coat, everything's cool. Joseph comes along and creates this amazing relationship with Egypt uh, and with Israel, uh, and, and they are coexisting for a period of time. We don't know how long that period of time is, but things are going really, really well. In fact, as we leave the story, like Joseph has kind of redeemed this whole thing and he saves the nation of Egypt by like storing up grain and like preventing them from famine. So like they owe the Israelites a ton of stuff. But as we open up in Exodus, the first couple lines we see, we see that there's a new Pharaoh. And pay attention to that word Pharaoh. That's going to come up a lot today. There's a new Pharaoh and he did not know Joseph. So now we've come into a period of unknowing. I like to call this period the messy middle. And anybody who's been in that period knows exactly what I'm talking about. There's a period of unknowing where we don't know what's going to happen, but all we know is that previous relationship isn't going so well anymore. Uh, it turns out the Israelites are actually really good at reproducing. <laughs> so, so they're reproducing in mass numbers, and they're growing to a point that the Egyptians are getting nervous, and the Pharaoh says, hey, this is getting out of control. They're going to be a little bit too powerful for us to even deal with, and they might take us over. So in the literal uh, verse says, I think this is like uh, Exodus 1.10, it says, let's be smart and deal with them, because if not, they might grow. They might grow. Not they might grow in numbers so they might defeat us, but they might grow. Right? So what do we know about Pharaoh so far, right from the beginning? Where Pharaoh shows up, growth stops. Right? They might grow. Let's be smart and deal with them because they might grow. That's a profound truth about any Pharaoh in our lives. Right? Where a Pharaoh shows up, growth stops. So they do deal with them, and they deal with them in the only way that ancient people seem to deal with things. They enslave this entire nation. And they enslave them for a long time. This is a shocking fact to me. I've preached like on Exodus a bunch, and I've sat through countless sermons, but I've never heard the exact number of time, and this is fascinating to me. They were enslaved for 400 years up until the time of Moses. 400 years. Which is tricky there, because did you, like, America is only 242 years old, and we're bold enough to call ourselves Americans. Right? These people have been enslaved for 400 years. What do you think they call themselves? Slaves. They do not have any concept of freedom. We've found them in a place where their total identity has been wiped away, and they have no idea why they're there or, importantly, where they are. 400 years. There's not a single person left in the generational line that understood what it was like to be free. This is an enormous amount of time in any historical period for a group of people, especially an entire nation, to be enslaved. And so at the core of these people now, their identity is we are slaves, the Egyptians are masters, that's just how it works. And their day would have been absolutely planned out to the minute. Here's what you do when you wake up, you make bricks. Here's what you do a little bit later, you make bricks. Here's what you do a little later, you make more bricks. <laughs> bricks, 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 go to sleep. 
That was the existence of an Israelite at this time, and that was what they knew. That's all they know. And so uh, God hears the groans of these people, these people that have been just, just battered down for hundreds of years. And what's amazing about this God, and this is the first sort of instance, when scholars look at the Bible, they look at Genesis, which is the first book, as just one big old prologue. So they say, like, the real story begins when we get to Exodus. And so we have to pay attention to the nature of God in every kind of way that we see it there because that's the true essence. That's like the first impression that we get of God. And the first impression we get of God in this book is that God does not want to keep them stuck in Egypt. God, God's ultimate plan then and now is for freedom. And so he finds this unlikely hero in the man named Moses, uh, who is actually a murderer on the run at this point, who lived with the Pharaoh. It's got a complicated backstory, but watch The Prince of Egypt and enjoy that terrific Mariah Carey jam. Uh, he's there, he's, he's in the wilderness, which is always a picture for a place where you're going to learn how to know something different. I like to call it like the wilderness is where you learn to know how to know, or you learn how to learn. It's, it's this messy middle again. It's this tricky place where you're going to have to learn new skills to do new things. Uh, and so God finds him there in the form of a bush. We've gone into that a ton. Uh, and says, Moses, I need you to go back. I need you to free my people. And Moses says, Lord, I, I stutter. What a terrific excuse, by the way, in the face of God to say, I can't do something because I stutter. Uh, but it was such a big deal for Moses that he's like, okay, cool. I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you. He's a great public speaker. Things are going to go well. They go in there. They mess with the Pharaoh for 10 different plagues. Pharaoh finally gets the point, and he says, fine, I relent. The final one, really messy here. Every firstborn is wiped out, but that also goes back to a genocide. I'm getting far too nerdy. Anyway, we're, we're moving on. There's 10 plagues, and at the end of those 10 plagues, Pharaoh goes, okay, fine. You can take them. Get these people out of here. And so they leave, and they go, and then something very, very interesting happens. They come to something called the Reed Sea. You know what's fascinating? In nowhere is it actually called the Red Sea, and yet we call it that all the time. They come to the sea, this body of water called the Reed Sea, and so it's a barrier. And it's not just a physical barrier. Remember, the Bible isn't written just like a manuscript or just like a, an owner's manual. The Bible is written in poetic and beautiful and wonderful ways. And so when they encounter water, water in that day meant mystery, depth, fear. They didn't have scuba equipment and could go down and see what's under there. So water was literally believed to be a place where monsters lived, like literal monsters. And some of them made it into the Bible. It's really weird. But anyway, they, they come to this body of water, and it's both a, a poetic picture of fear and anxiety and worry, and then a physical fear of, oh my gosh, look at this giant body of water. And then they turn around, and they see this army coming after him, because like any psychopath, Pharaoh goes, no, I've made a mistake. I want those people back. So he sends his army. And that's what we're going to pick up in the scripture here. Um, first one. Uh, as Pharaoh drew closer, this is as the army's coming, the Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching towards them. And the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, this is the first line that we hear from the Israelites, the first line of dialogue. This is the first time we hear them speak after 400 years of slavery. And they say this, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? Have you not done uh, to us by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The 
The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. So what can we learn from this? I think the interesting thing is whenever we're on the precipice of true freedom, of of leaving those pharaohs behind, there's going to be this period of worry, anxiety, fear, that we're going to look back and we're going to say, ah, but I was just so much more comfortable over here. Like this place, I know this place. As bad as it was, at least I know myself in it. And so in those moments, and there's always going to be those moments, those kind of threshold moments where we are on the, the precipice, just right there, the cusp of actually breaking through something. And that could be greed, that could be addiction, that could be anything. My friend Britt Barron has this wonderful observation where she says, uh, Pharaoh doesn't have a name. He's not called Ramses or anything like that in there. He's called Pharaoh. And the reason Pharaoh doesn't have a name is because you can plug and play your Pharaoh into that name whichever way you like. So it's stress, it's worry, my Pharaoh's anxiety, my Pharaoh is addiction, my Pharaoh is any, any number of things can be, did I just say number? <laughs> any number of things, any number of things can be a Pharaoh can be something that can take our power away. And so they're standing there, and Moses' reply to them is not like, okay, we'll hold up, like, I'll go over there, I'm going to send a lightning bolt, or God's going to put a big old fire, or automatically we're just going to go and fight them, right? Fight or flight, that would be the two options, right? Those are the two things we have. But in God's way, there always seems to be this weird third way. And that weird third way that comes up in here is God says, you don't fight, you don't flight, you be still. Just be still, and the Lord your God is going to fight for you. So when we find ourselves in these moments where we're right on the cusp of freedom and we're ready to make that decision and that worry and that fear and anxiety comes, God's word to us is just, hey, be still. How many, how many situations in our lives and, and conflicts would resolve if we could just take the time to be still enough to actually process and listen? I've talked about this before, but I'm fascinated with like brain stuff. Uh, and there's a part of your brain, it's called the lizard brain. It's the oldest part of your brain. And when fear and anxiety hit, your lizard brain takes over to the point that you cannot make rational decisions. The, way, the reason they call it a lizard brain is it's literally a reptilian brain. So in moments of fear, an alligator will either eat you or run away, right? Those are the only two options. But you are not a lizard. <laughs> you have more options than that. And so to be still is to say, nope. I'm just going to sit with this for a minute. And I'm going to hand this over to a power that's greater than myself, and I'm not going to hand it over to Pharaoh. And there is the choice. To hand your power over to a, a God that loves you or to hand your power over to a Pharaoh that wants you enslaved. And we could talk about this on a giant level uh, in terms of politics and everything like that, uh, in terms of how we give our power away. But today, I just want to talk about us and what's inside of you. And, and it's, the, it's the choice between inner captivity, I don't want to use the word slavery there, but inner captivity or inner freedom. Inner freedom is the choice to give your power away to something that loves you, and inner captivity is the choice to give your power away to something that just wants to keep you down and destroy you. And we have to make that choice almost every single day. And some of us have to make that choice even more than that. The good news is we have a God that actually wants to step into that narrative, step into that story, and work amazing things. 
It's all about giving our power to the right place. To understand exactly where we are is where God wants us. And if we're just still, if we're right here, if we're where we are and we know where we are, that's freedom. That's freedom. So there's a really weird story in the Bible that I think illustrates this perfectly. Uh, and I have had such a tough time with this scripture uh, for pretty much my entire life uh, because it ends very, very strangely. And it puts you a picture in your, in your head of Jesus that's like, I don't think that's on brand for Jesus, but uh, we'll, we'll unpack and we'll get through it. Um, this is called the, the parable of the wedding banquet. It starts out great. Uh, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, again, parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet, banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. The oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Okay, so just stop right here. In ancient societies, uh, you didn't have the availability to just like kind of send out like an, you know, like an invite, that kind of thing. So you would send out servants, and they would send out, and they would say, Hey, uh, and this would be in like a village society, so they're not journeying like to far off lands or anything. They would just say like in the neighborhood, like, Hey, there's going to be a wedding. It's going to be on this day, but because they have to like kill calves and all that kind of stuff and then they gotta make a meal and everything. There's no direct way, that could take days, that could take hours, so there would be a second invite. So essentially there's like an RSVP, there's a save the date and then there's an RSVP, right? They're saying like, okay, well the wedding's gonna happen, uh, but go to this. And so basically in this story, all of these people, these townspeople, these villagers, and remember this is a king, they have RSVP'd yes to this banquet. And now the time has come, and then get this, Every other story, even in the prodigal son, where we have this moment where it's supposed to be like this huge, humongous party, this lavish thing that God is throwing for this prodigal son that returns, uh, we have an instance where the father says, kill the fattened calf, which is a big deal because one fattened calf could feed an entire village. In this story, we have plural. We have uh, the oxen, plural, and fattened cattle, meaning this party is going to be crazy. It is going to last a very, very long time, and we are expecting a whole lot of people to show up. You will not go hungry at this party. Uh, and so uh, the, the invitation is sent out. Come, the food is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Uh, next slide there, David, please. Uh, but they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants. This is where this takes a weird turn. Mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Do not miss the king's party. Uh, then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Anyone you find. Just pause there for a second and look at that as a picture of an American church. Anyone you find. Anyone. So the servants went out onto the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. There is no sort of like, like judgment at this party. You are just invited in. Uh, next slide there. Uh, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, this man. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wearing wedding clothes, friend? 
So imagine this, you're a king and you're not dressed for the occasion and the king comes up and says, calls you friend, right? This is a loving comment, but says, how'd you get in here with that attire, right? I wear sandals all the time at so many restaurants in Santa Monica, we'll get to the top and they're like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> you cannot come in here. I know this man's pain. So he comes and the man is stunned speechless. He has nothing to say. And the king did not take that well after burning cities and all that kind of stuff, I can only imagine. So he says, then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not great, right? Not great. And this is supposed to be a picture of God, correct? But this story is actually beautiful if we look at it with a more historical and poetic lens. This is not a story, and so many people have just dragged this thing through the mud in terms of saying, like, well, you know, few will be called, and, like, you'll get in there, and then he'll say, I never knew you, and he'll throw you out. The story is much, much different than that, and it's, it's, it's so much more beautiful, and it deserves so much more. Here's the deal. Have you ever been, uh, I think, like, my wife uh, went to school in Texas, so we've gone to a lot of weddings in Texas, and in Texas, a wedding is just like this. I mean, it's, it's, everything's bigger in Texas. So it's just this enormous thing. Uh, and most of the bougie weddings in Texas, when you come in the door, and this has now trickled into California weddings, when you come in the door, you, my wife Chelsea uh, was handed this, this beautiful garment called a pashmina. A, a pashmina. Does anybody know what a pashmina is? It's like this free scarf. And so I'm like, it's 2019, give me my pashmina. Uh, but we come into the story, and... You get handed this pashmina, and everyone has a pashmina, and it's this unifying thing. And it turns out that the pashmina is actually an anciently beautiful thing that nobody knows, and they're probably just trying to be fancy and hand out pashminas. But the deal with handing out a garment at a wedding is a deeply Jewish idea that goes back thousands and thousands of years. If you attended a Jewish wedding, oh, this is fascinating. If you attended a Jewish wedding, there were two parts to the wedding, and they would go on for a very long time. But the first part... Uh, the Hebrew word there would be uh, to carry. And then the second, oh no, I'm sorry, the first part would be the Hebrew word to, is holy, holy. So you would come to the holy part of the ceremony. And then the second part was the party, and it was the Hebrew verb to carry. And so in the Jewish tradition, somehow the wedding represented a moment that carries the holy. And if that's not the coolest thing ever, and we lost that, we got to take that back, right? To carry the holy. The carry part also has to do with the guy throwing the bride over his arm and then weird things happen and they come back. But anyway, uh, the more beautiful part is it carries the holy, right? So the, at a Jewish wedding, though, also at this ancient time, especially at a king's banquet, you would be handed a wedding garment. So this isn't something that you would dress for the occasion. In fact, you'd be handed a wedding robe and you would walk in and everyone would put on the wedding robe. And that was for two things. One, and especially at this party, no one is higher than anybody else at this party. You can't outdress the next person, right? Your status, your robes, and garments had a huge, huge to-do back then. They were a very expensive thing. They were about as expensive as a home in some cases. So your, what you wore mattered even more than it does today. So you were handed this wedding garment, which would have been a simple white garment that you would put on to say, like, not only is this where no one's higher than the other, but the other beautiful truth about this is it signifies that moment that we leave the garden and the first thing God does for us is he clothes us. So you're stepping into a place of care, you're stepping into a place of warmth, and you're going to be clothed here. So it's, it's this gorgeous thing. So this man who walks in doesn't take the wedding garment, doesn't take the free tuxedo, as it were, doesn't take the pashmina. He walks right by. 
And scholars have looked at this for years as this man being defiant, sending a political signal, saying, like, I wasn't one of the first people to invite it, who got invited, so I'm second tier, so now I'm just going to kind of give you the metaphorical middle finger here, and I'm going to walk in, like, without this wedding garment, and I'm going to prove to you that I am someone. And that's a beautiful way to look at that. But I think, and in my readings this week, uh, I discovered something truly incredible. I think this man wasn't some, like, evil genius, vengeance monster person. I don't think he was smart at all. I think this man had no idea where he was. <laughs> I think he was lost. I literally think he was dumbfounded and lost. He had no clue where he was. If we look at that interaction between him and the king, it's not like he makes an excuse or it's not like he says like, well, I'm here and here for so-and-so and you didn't invite me the first round and I am somebody and I will prove myself. He just stands there speechless. Like, oh gosh, how'd I get here? <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. Uh, my friend, uh, my friend David Cotton, who's up there, I was going to be like, can I tell this story? And I was like, I'll just call my friend. I'm going to call out David Cotton. This is a terrific story. <laughs> David Cotton, uh, Chelsea's 25th birthday, I threw this surprise party uh, at, at Bodega, which is here in Santa Monica. Uh, but there were two, there were three other parties going on in the same thing, and these are reserved sections and stuff. Uh, and so David gets there a little bit early, uh, and, and I'm not there yet to like, set anything up, and there are two other parties going on. So David uh, just saunters in to one of the other parties, assuming that this is Chelsea's party, grabs a drink, is just hanging out for like a little bit, and is just kind of sitting there like waiting, like getting the vibes, like stays there for a little long, and then just kind of finally is like, I don't recognize anyone here, and finally goes up to someone and is like, how, how do you know Chelsea? And they're like... Chelsea, and then he sees like the banner that we're putting up for like Chelsea's birthday, and it's across the way, and he just goes like, okay, <laughs> right? So it's the same sort of story. I don't think this man was trying to be evil in any way. I think he simply had no idea where he was. And when the king sums up and he says, how did you get in here without these clothes? Why didn't you take the free tuxedo? I just don't think this man had any idea where he was. And that is the opposite of freedom, to have no clue where you are and to be lost. That's the whole point of Jesus. He wants to turn the lights on and show you where you are. But let's look at that whole weird getting thrown out of the party thing. At a certain point, he gets tied up and they throw him out into the darkness. And you have to remember, Jesus is speaking in parables. He's speaking in stories. He's speaking in symbols. And I think it's profoundly interesting that the first characters in this that said no did things like they returned to their field, they returned to their work, they returned to their business. In another version of this story in a different gospel, someone says, I just got married, I can't come. I think these people are just as tied up with the regular rhythms of life to understand what an invitation to that kind of party really is. And so when this man finds himself there, dumbfounded, having no clue where he stands, it's as if to feel like you've been tied up and you're thrown into the darkness. That's how it feels to not know where you are. And that's what being lost is. I think we've, we've held a really poor definition of lost in Christian communities. Uh, it's been used to belittle, it's been used to hurt, it's been used as an insult, it's been used as a, a label they're lost, right? They don't know, they're lost. So that means that there's something about them that they chose and that they're, they're choosing to be lost. We don't talk like that in any other kind of context. If, 
If I told you about my favorite band and you didn't know who they were, I wouldn't lean over and whisper to my friend, he's so lost. Like, we don't, we don't do that in any other capacity. Lost is just simply having no clue where you are. Nobody gets lost on purpose. Nobody except for those wackos who go on vacation, they're like, I just got lost. But that's not what they do. They just simply didn't look at Google Maps for like an hour. Like, they're not lost. They can find their way at any point. No one gets actually physically lost on purpose. Because to be actually lost, there is a terrific amount of fear. There's terror. There's anxiety. There's worry. There's just not knowing where you are and the panic of trying to find your way again. Being lost is an incredibly uncomfortable place to be. Chelsea and I, uh, like almost 10 years ago, my grandparents have a place uh, in Vermont that we go every summer. Uh, and we uh, went up there to go visit them uh, and hang out at their little lake house there. But the, the place they live in Vermont is just about like a three-hour drive to Montreal in Canada. And so we were, we were there for like a week, and we were kind of itching to be in like a city environment. Because this is just way out. It's 45 minutes to the nearest grocery store when you're there. So we're like, oh, let's take, like, let's take a, a night trip to Montreal We'd never been to Canada before. We'd never really, we'd, we'd actually never traveled internationally before. Uh, this was like as far as we'd been, and that was in Vermont. So this was exciting. Uh, we had rented a car, so we were like, okay, yeah, let's go to Montreal. We did no research in typical me fashion, uh, no research into what Montreal is, or we just booked a hotel, and we were like, okay, yeah, we got this, let's go. Assuming everyone spoke English, assuming we'd be fine. So we drive into the country, we get into the border, and the first thing that happens is our cell phone goes, choo. <laughs> Because the international line, which I failed to research, uh, it turns out like AT&T does not exist once you pop over there. You needed to set up a different international phone plan or you needed to set up a different thing. I had not done that. So our phone goes blank and then it asks me uh, if I'd like roaming charges and I say, no way, I know that game. So I'm like, we're gonna find where we're going. We know we'll just follow signs to Montreal and then once we're there, we'll figure it out. So we're following signs, but it turns out Every road sign is in French. There is not a single road sign in English for a place that speaks 50-50 English and French. I'd appreciate just like one little English line below. Nothing. So it's all French, and I'm beginning to get very worried because at least the word Montreal, that translates both French and English. So we're following that for a bit, but as soon as we get into the city, there's this intricate network of highways that are all around. And so we're panicking because we're like, do we take this exit? Do we take this freeway? What do we do? We're going around in circles, and finally I'm like losing my mind. And Chelsea's like, why don't we pull over and get a map? And I'm like, what's that? So then we keep moving, and we find ourselves uh, in the city, and it's all these one-way streets, and I'm going crazy, and I'm like, fine, I pull out my phone, I click on those roaming charges, put it in the GPS, we find the hotel, and we were no longer lost. However, that was a $400 phone bill for simply turning my Google Maps on, and I'm still peeved about it. Anyway, to be lost is to be in a state of abject panic. And please note that story. It wasn't that I, I really chose to be lost, even though you could argue that, yes, Josh, you did choose to be lost. Uh, but it's more that I just, I just took the wrong path. I went the wrong direction. And as a result, I, I, I just I found myself way off the path. And it wasn't an intentional thing. I didn't want to be there. It hurt to be there. It was scary to be there. And yet that's, that's where I found myself. Being lost happens to all of us. And I'm here to tell you this, and it's really important. Sometimes that's a choice, sometimes it's not. And we really need to focus on the sometimes it's not part. Sometimes you're gonna find yourself in a place in your life that is so painful and weird. And that is not your fault. 
That is not your fault. You're simply in a weird place. And the good news is, and the beautiful thing about this Jesus story, is that we have a God that wants to pull you out of that place, that wants to hold on to you. And the most gorgeous image of this, and I think the most telling thing, is that we're literally referred to sheep, <laughs> right? Not some noble, majestic creature like a lion or whatever. We're referred to just kind of sheep, and sheep are herded. They are, they are animals that just simply follow, right? And so there's this beautiful picture in the scripture of Jesus referring us to sheep, and this is what he says. Here's that slide. Yeah, perfect. Um, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors. Look, we've got another party here. And rejoices. He says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Please note in this story, this sheep is not the prodigal son. It is not squandering its life and wild living. It's not asking for its father's inheritance. This sheep simply got peeled off the herd and got lost from no fault of its own. It just finds itself knowing, having no idea where it is. And the most beautiful part of this story is that God doesn't come up and berate the sheep and tell him, why did you run away? What's your problem? You realize there are 99 other sheep over there and I've come just to get you? No, he just lifts him up and he carries him back. There's no work on the part of the sheep. He gets a free ride home. <laughs> he lifts him up and he carries him back. When we find ourselves in that lost place, freedom is completely eliminated. And what Jesus does is he comes back and he brings us back to freedom. He brings us back to freedom. And this happens all the time, this, these unintentional things. There's a whole period, we're going to go into this at Easter, uh, but after the resurrection, when Jesus comes back to life, there's this whole period of time where people can't even recognize Jesus. The people that were closest to him can't even see him. And that's not their fault. <laughs> Jesus is just there to turn the lights on. The story where these two guys are walking down the road and they are walking with Jesus for a long way and they don't recognize him until he just breaks bread and then all of a sudden disappears. And they were like, holy smokes. Did our hearts not burn with fire when we were with him along the road? That was him. Right? This is the work of Jesus. It's to turn the lights on in the room. It's to say, look where you are. Suddenly everything is visible and you know exactly where you are and you can be free. One of my favorite stories about this is, is one of Mary. And Mary is uh, coming to the tomb to basically embalm Jesus. Like they didn't do a good job of that properly burying him. Uh, and so she's coming back a few days later, three to be exact, uh, to properly bury Jesus. She would have been dealing with the stench in the tomb, all this crazy stuff. And she comes to the garden that he's buried in. And she sees this man who she thinks is the gardener. And she begins to weep. She just begins to cry. And the gardener comes and he comforts her and he says, Woman, why are you crying? She says, Well, my master has been taken. Someone's stolen his body. I forgot to mention that. Someone stole his body. <laughs> That's why she's crying. She's not overwhelmed with the beauty of the garden. Uh, someone stole the body. And so she's, she's like, No, I, I'm, I'm devastated. 
And Jesus just simply says, Mary, Mary. Says her name, her name, back to the names. If you can name something, you can free something. He says her name, and all of a sudden, her eyes are open, and she sees Jesus, and she exclaims, teacher, and they embrace. And I think what's so beautiful about that story are those tears. Tears are so funny. They're only named tears when they're rolling down your face. If not, it's just bodily fluid. <laughs> tears tell the truth. They tell the truth of being lost, and they help point us to where we need to be. They're cathartic. They are beautiful. And we do too much work to try and hold them in. But tears, if we let them, will tell the truth of the moment that we're in, and they will lead us to naming something. I think there's... There's no more beautiful thing than we have the same word that's spelled the same way for tear and tear. So I think tears are something that tear through our, our, all of our trying to hold things in. They tear through us and reveal something true about us. So in the hopes of freedom, tears should just be embraced. Embrace tears in your life and understand your name and be free. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for, um, for your freedom that you offer so freely um, that we have a chance to just put on that pashmina and join the party and that our seat is there and it's waiting for us and all we have to do is choose to, be, to come alive, to come awake, uh, to turn the lights on to where we are. And thank you so much that you're a God that does that. Amen.